Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that still wonders what Robert Hughes up to. My name is Cameron McDonald and I spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and TalkSport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. Controversy and excitement this week as we get back to the seven goal thrillers and other startling scorelines, but also some one nils. And that's where we're going to start with perhaps the most significant game for both sides, Manchester United nil, Arsenal one. Yeah, a very interesting game this, um, despite the low score, largely just because of, you know, the fact that it's the first time in over 14 years that Arsenal have managed to get a win away at Old Trafford. Um and you could look at, you know, some aspects of this having been Arsenal sort of improving with that spine of Partey and Gabriel. But I think the main story here was was kind of just United failing to play to their their strengths. Um, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I guess, like, let's start with, why don't you elaborate a little bit more on what you see as Manchester United's strengths and where you think they came unstuck? I think United are best when they play sort of fluent attacking football and and. They remind me in a lot of ways of the Liverpool side with that that Suarez, uh, Sterling and Sturridge uh, combination in that I don't think they're going to win any games by being defensive, um, especially not with you know Harry Maguire making so many mistakes. David De Gea is not the player he once was. So I really do think that they can't afford sure. to sit back um, if, they, if they want to win games. And I think this was kind of exemplified by the, the chalk and cheese week they had. You know, midweek, they went away to Leipzig and put five past them, looked absolutely imperious. And then they came to an Arsenal side that have been struggling to score goals, you know, this season. So you would think the best way to beat them is to try and outscore them and instead didn't really make the most of the game. Yeah, I mean, I think that to start there is also to start with Arsenal's pressing game. And I think that they did a really good, effective job of taking charge of that midfield and putting a lot of pressure on the defence as Man U tried to play out. Um, I think the second goal came from them um, tackling a defender. I think it was Willian. He looks great in that role because I think he's added a little bit more energy to Arsenal's attack and also its first line of defence. Um, I think that yeah, that right-hand side of Arsenal with Hector Bellerin and Willian at times are really dangerous. Um, and I think that Arsenal looked like a slightly different side again. I mean, we've had a lot of false dawns, but mm. I think this is, as you said, equal parts Man U not playing very well, but also some encouraging signs from Arsenal. Yeah, I think, you know, any time you break something that's happened for, you know, that's taken that long, 14, 15 years... You've got to, you know, say that some of it is Arsenal have played really well, and I think they do look a lot more sturdy um, this season in general. I think they've, you know, they've conceded the least goals of any team in the league, but especially with Thomas Partey coming in, Mohamed Al Nenny, who I would have never really said was quite the level, had a really good game. Um, I think Gabriel's had his ups and downs, but overall is is looking to have improved that side. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they develop for the rest of the season, especially with everyone else, you know, falling off and, and dropping points. Um, you know, which Arsenal will we end up seeing at the end of the season? Will it be the Arsenal that can beat United 1-0 away? Or will it be the Arsenal that we've seen at other times with just dropping points and, and clangers in general? Well, I mean, this is definitely, um, you know, a game to build on and uh, something to build around. I think that the first thing that Arteta needs to do is make sure that he knows exactly what the strongest starting eleven is and then go from there. Yeah, and, and I think a big part of that is, you know, looking at that starting eleven, what they can add to it. Because I don't think... Certainly, for me, they're nowhere near a side that could challenge for the title, but I still think they need to add, if, even if they want to finish top four, 
Um, and, you know, they talked a lot about Auer on the summer, didn't quite get it over the line. There are a lot of other attacking-minded players that looked to be connected as replacements for Ozil. Um, and so I think January is going to be make or break for them um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, agreed. Um, I just wanted to uh, spend a little time focusing on Paul Pogba because he was the player that conceded the penalty. Uh, and I was looking back through some of his statistics and I found quite an interesting thing out. I looked at his 2015-16 Serie A season compared to last season in the Premier League and my instinct was that I feel like this is a generally accepted thing that Pogba is maybe asked to do more of a defensive job at Manchester United and as a result... Uh, other parts of his game have suffered and he hasn't really been able to find that form that he had in his last years in Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, obviously that may be being exemplified by the fact that he gave away the penalty um, this weekend. And what was really interesting that I found out was that he had three times more interceptions at Juventus than Manchester United per 90. He also had... Uh, 2.3 tackles made per 90 to 1.5, which is also way more, um, and about the same ball recoveries. Whereas Pogba at Man U has more chances created significantly, better pass accuracy, more passes completed, and more take-ons. So it's it's an interesting dialogue around Pogba, and I think for me it just made me even more confused to work out what it is that's going on with him that he can't find any sort of form in that middle park for Man U. Yeah, no, and I think that's, that's a really interesting point you raise because I think what it for me highlights is not so much that he's been played uh, more defensively or, or more offensively for United as compared to Juventus, but just that it's been a very confused time for him as a player. Um, and he's not the first player that United have had where that's that's happened. And sometimes it works out a little better. I think Martial is a player who's, you know, had to transition from being an out-and-out striker to a winger and has found some success like that. Um, I think also of players like Di Maria, who had a really, really tough time there because they just never played him. I, I think it was actually a fact they never played him in the same position in two consecutive games. Uh, and I think Paul Pogba, although he always does play as a, as a CM, they do sometimes think, oh, okay, is he going to be the number 10 and all our creative force? And sometimes they go, oh, is he going to be our, you know, our, our midfield general and make tough tackles? And sometimes they try and get him to do both, which I think means he ends up doing neither. Yeah, and I think... I think the main thing is, I mean, obviously we can't uh, sit here and pretend that the Juventus midfield of 2015-16 is the same as Manchester United's midfield of 2019-2020. But I do feel like what's missed in all of this dialogue is that Pogba at Juventus was so good because he was given the freedom to operate in that position as he saw fit. He's an incredibly intelligent player and I think he's really good at reading the flow of the game and knowing when to put in a more defensive shift, when to put on the offensive, when to operate as a a box-to-box. And at Man U, as you said, he's always like asked to play all of these different roles at all of these different times rather than just being allowed to play his game. How much do you think that, I think it was it's fair to say, relative to the expectations that, that were had of him, that his time at United so far has been, you know, a bit of a failure um, relative to that. So where would you portion most of the blame for that do you think it rests on Paul Pogba's shoulders as you know Graham Souness would be keen to point out or do you think it's you know different managers and the systems that have failed him I think it's personally I would say it's different managers and systems I think as you mentioned have mentioned before um, the media hasn't done an adequate job of supporting him especially when he lost his father Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, personally, I, I would attribute it to managers not knowing how to get the best out of him, which I always find surprising in a world filled with statistics and filled with analysis that you can spend 80 plus million on a player and not work out what to do with him. Yeah. No, it definitely is strange. But, um, you know, that that was United-Arsenal. Um, again, with some positives and some negatives. Um, but moving into our other two games that we're going to be sort of looking at individually, but there's a, a central theme that was, in, in my mind, one of the big negatives of the sport. And it's something that, I, you know, I don't think any football fan likes. I think the discourse on it has been pretty united over the last few days. And that's uh, diving and the penalties that we saw in Liverpool-West Ham and Spurs-Brighton. Uh, so which which of those would you like to to take a bite out of first? <laughs> uh let's start with Liverpool West Ham. Uh, do you want to start with the penalty or should we start elsewhere? Uh let, well, let's let's talk about the the penalty in the context of the game because I think you know it was it was a 2-1. So both of these games were changed by the penalties. Um just to begin with the actual incident of the penalty. What's what's your thought on whether or not it was a penalty? So I I think we're probably going to be in disagreement here mm-hmm. because I have quite a nuanced approach to my, my this kind of uh, incident. I think it was not a penalty, but I also do not think that it was a dive. Okay, so contextualize. So yeah. basically, you know, he felt a bit of pressure from the defender. He felt contact. He mm. went down. That's normal. In my mind, a dive is actively trying to deceive the referee and is being deceptive, yeah, in, in terms of feeling contact versus not feeling contact. He had contact, he went down, it's up to the referee at that point to work out whether or not it's enough contact to merit a penalty, but I don't think you can class that as a dive, and that's exactly what Match of the Day did, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. It's not a dive in the same sense that the other one we're going to look at is, for sure, and I think that where Salah is very good at this, and I also you know, remember... A lot of players like this who are just very tricky wingers um, is, is making a meal out of something, and I think there's a part of that that you know if you're a winger you want to sort of be able to be able to get it in Italy they call it football, which is like you know being sneaky and being tricky. Um, but I do think that a lot of the time it's just not enough for a penalty, and referees do get deceived by it, VAR gets deceived by it. It's just it, it for me. I look at it and it's it's cheating basically. I just there's too much grey area I think to call that deceptive. You know, what, I don't know, what decibel of pressure do you have to feel in order to go down? Does it need to be actively hindering you? Does it need to be, uh, you know, does it need to maybe cause an injury? At what point are you allowed to just, like, go over? I, well, I, I don't know. I think that's a really hard thing to... Well, I, I think I think at what point do you go over? You know, you can go over as soon as you felt pressure, but I think a big part of the reason is, is the hamming it up and the, and the, you know, really selling it as it always just collided to me into 50 miles an hour. Um, I think Masuaku, I was reading earlier, according to the IFAB laws, it could be seen as a penalty. And so I don't even think that most people would have an issue with it if Salah just goes down, but it's something that we consistently see with him, which is really just overegging the pudding. And that, for me, is is deceptive. Um, because he's he's exaggerated the, the physical reaction. I, I I get where you're coming from. I just I for me that is the distinction I would make is that I don't think it should have been a penalty. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that if we looked at that again, Salah should have been given a yellow card for a dive. I, I think, think that that kind of middle ground is when the ref goes, "You've not dived because obviously there was contact, but it's not enough for me to give a penalty and and get up." 
So just just relative to this, because I wanted to get further into sort of the diving thing, how did you feel about Harry Kane's uh, manufacturing of, of, of a scenario? I I think that's a little. I think I think I need to have a look at it again. I mean, at the time, it looked like the Brighton defender had just been a little bit silly. Mm-hmm. I think I have a little more sympathy with Masuaku because. I don't think he did very much wrong, whereas I kind of felt like, I can't remember exactly which Brighton defender it was, but I felt like he'd just been a little bit rash in coming around in behind Harry Kane. And I think that was probably more borderline dive worthy for sure. See, for me, I, I actually, I'm all the way at the other end of the of the harshest scale. I think this is well worse than the, than the Salah one um, because Kane backs into it. He looks back and he can see that the defender is in the air. And he, he's done this quite a few times. And he backs into the player to sort of manufacture a scenario where he's fallen on top of. And that's really dangerous. You can, you can you know, just by knocking the angle of someone's jump off, they can land on an ankle. They can twist something. They, you know, you can injure a player quite badly by doing that. Um, and he does do it all the time. And it's one of those things that always kind of smacks to me. And we've spoken a little bit about this in the past with reference to, like, you know, how players like Harry Maguire get support versus, you know, non-English counterparts. But it's always interesting to me how when Harry Kane does it, the general thing, and it's changed a little bit this week because he's like the England captain, it's, oh, he's so clever, you know, he managed to get those and managed to find something out of nothing and do that. And Salah, when he did it, everyone was going, you know, he's a cheat, he's a cheat. And Ollie Holt uh, picked up on this quite well on TalkSport and said, you know, it's weird how English players can get away with it. Um, Whereas Salah, or other people, and I, for the for the record, I think they should both be called cheats. But it's it's just one of those things that always ugh, smacks poorly for me. Oh, I just I don't know. I, it's not like Harry Kane's in a, a strange position. It's not like he shouldn't be where he is. It looks like to me, if the Brighton defender doesn't jump, he's just trying to back into the defender, and he's trying to take it on his chest and be goal side. Yeah, but I, I think, think it's, I think the, the key I think it's up point. to the Brighton defender to come in. His knees super high, and I think that if you go in that rashly in the prem against a striker who is going to get his body in the way, you're just asking to get given a pen. I think the key point, though, and this is something that everyone's been looking at as well this week, is that this is something that we're seeing again and again from the same type of players, and you know. It is Harry Kane and Mohamed Salah and, and a number of these players who are just repeat offenders and they can kind of do it because there's no real punishment for diving. You just get a booking. Sean Dyke made that point a couple of weeks ago when he sort of uh, took issue with Callum Hudson-Odoi getting, getting only a yellow for his dive and he said, you know, because the Premier League has filtered down that you only get one booking, you know, for, for simulation and there's nothing more than that, everyone gets one chance to cheat and not get sent off. Um, and I do think, you know, in a sense... If you are a Harry Kane type player or a, or a Mo Salah type player and you get away with it more often than not, why would you not do it? So me, my thing is I, I would say red cards for diving uh, need to start being brought in. And I, I, these are both potentially nuanced discussions. Um, so, you know, maybe they wouldn't be issued under this. I, I certainly would have them, but I think it's time to, to crack down more on diving because it's, it's shameful as a football fan when you see that happening in your sport. It is, but I I don't know if Harry Kane should ever have been sent off for that. I don't know, even I don't even know if you can call that a dive. So the problem is that it's too, as you said, it's too nuanced a thing to have such extreme measures. 
It's, it, but, so I think when people think of a dive, they often think of someone just going down without any contact. But so maybe that's the wrong word for this. But this is sim. It's, it's, the other word is simulation. Simulation. That they use. And, yeah. and this is what's happened. He's simulated. Uh, you, you know, he's managed to create a position that actually isn't natural for me anyway. He backs into the player and and creates the situation, knowing that he's going to get a penalty. And and he's done it before. Um, you know, you'd be more willing. To, to sort of let that fly if it was someone who didn't do that very often. But it is these same players who keep finding themselves in these positions. And it's not it's not by accident. Okay, I mean, so all I will say is, if you look at that um, Harry Kane one, yes, he looks back, but he doesn't look back and have enough time to react to Adam Lallana jumping. And if Adam Lallana doesn't jump, Kane is in the perfect spot to hold off the defender and take it down on his chest. I don't think you can call that simulation. Uh, well, I suppose we'll have to, to agree to disagree on that one, because I, I, I really do think, and there was the, the initial reaction from the uh, the commentary team, uh, that, that, that you know they, they called that, but it is a nuanced discussion. Um, how do you think Spurs looked in this game besides? Because it was another, well, first time for Gareth Bale. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, Bale's goal, assisted by Sergio Reguilon, who also had a good game, mm. was the first goal in three games that Kane hasn't scored or assisted in the Prem, which is a worrying statistic, but also encouraging that it's been broken. I think that Gareth Bale looks like he's taking on a different role at Spurs. And I think that him and Harry Kane could work out dovetailing quite nicely because we think of Gareth Bale as more of an attacking midfielder, but... He's taken the number nine shirt. A lot of what we've seen of him has been him getting into the box and looking to get on the end of chances rather than create them. And I think that that allows Harry Kane to drop back, be a little bit more creative, but it also means that, you know, they can interchange quite well. So I think that potentially this goal from Bale is a sign of things to come, getting into the box, scoring a great header. Um yeah, I definitely could that's... be. And, and that's the joke that we made um, when he joined, obviously, about Mourinho not liking wingers and, and loving number nines. And you were saying, like, well, I've given him the number nine. Maybe that's Mourinho's subtle way of going, striker, you're a striker now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think um, I think he could well be. I mean, he plays well down the middle. He always has. He did it at Spurs as well, even if it was as an attacking midfielder rather than a striker. But I think, you know, him and Kane can both operate in the number 10 in the hole, and also as the target man, I think it could well bear a lot of fruit as a partnership going forwards. I think that Spurs also had a decent amount of balance in the game. Brighton haven't always looked like they can consistently challenge the opponent's goal for over 90 minutes during this season, but I think they still deserve a little bit of credit as a defence and as a midfield for restricting Brighton's opportunities. Mm. Um and yeah, I think overall, pretty solid, if a little bit, you know, uneventful game for Spurs. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the events were the stuff that, that happened off the pitch. And you said there that Brighton have had some trouble, you know, making things happen going forwards. And that was never more true than today, really, because they were missing their main attacking guy, Neil Morpé, who was left out of the squad because apparently he had an altercation with a teammate last week during the West Brom game, which is just... I mean, not really what you want to see for a guy who who seems to be starting a, a nascent career in the Premier League, you know. To it's it's a shame when it really is, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
But yeah, so th- those are our two-one games. Uh, good to know that we uh, don't always agree on everything. We've got some some differing opinions uh, on that. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, just going back to the Liverpool West Ham game because we didn't really break it down. I think the first thing to talk about is Nathaniel Phillips, um, Liverpool's new centre back that they've magicked from thin air, yep. who looks like he could be a very solid player. Um, and also, I guess maybe to recognise that West Ham played pretty well, could have maybe deserved a point. With Antonio, could have been a different story. So again, despite not gaining anything from it points-wise, another encouraging performance, at yeah. least for me to see as someone who predicted them finishing 20th this season. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I had Villa finishing 20th, so... Look at that. It's a couple of guys who get it right. <laughs> so we have a look at guessing game moving next. I think you've got something for me this week. I do indeed, my friend. Yeah, I've got a uh, an interesting one. We'll see if you get it. You might you might have done this research uh, another time, so <laughs> you know you could well get it straight away. But you're not allowed to say that you've got it straight away because we're changing it up this week. In that we're introducing a new rule, which says that we are going to introduce the guessing game and the parameters for this player that we're trying to work out who it is, and then we're going to reveal the answers towards the end of the podcast so your player of the week i have three statistics for you okay he started his senior career at norwich and first played in the premiership for coventry in 2000 okay he's from the uk and he is the only player to have scored for seven different Premier League clubs. Hmm. So for context, there are, I think, eight players that have scored for six different Premier League clubs, and there's only one in the history of the Prem who has scored for seven. That, that's in the history of the, of the Premier League, not, not the, the English football yeah. league. Or... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. Okay, that's giving me something to think about. I, okay, I'm glad you haven't hopefully got us straight away or you're doing a good uh, bluffing face. Uh, we will move on. Good luck to everyone in the meantime. To Burnley nil, Chelsea 3. Burnley nil, Chelsea again, 3, which again was Chelsea sort of at last maybe coming together a little bit in the attack and the defence figuring things out. It sure was. I mean, I think that this felt like a real coming-of-age performance for a lot of these Chelsea players and really just a, a tactical... Set up as well. I think that the team looked so much more balanced. It looked really like a solid one to eleven performance for everyone. Um, I think the first thing that I want to start with is why the hell has N'Golo Kante not played at holding mid for the last three years? Yeah, it's, it's this weird. This is isn't something it? that has consistently baffled me, and I could kind of understand it. Because Sari came in and he brought with him his preferred midfield maestro, Jorginho, and Kante got shifted to the right. And then it's kind of like one of those things, you know, when um, Jose Mourinho was at Real Madrid mm. and Ica Casillas got dropped. Yeah. And everyone was like, why is, why is this happening? And then Jose Mourinho got fired and the new guy that came in also dropped Ica Casillas. And we were like, what, why is mm. this still happening? And I felt kind of the same in this, which was that when Lampard came in, he was still not playing Kante in his preferred position. He's literally 
arguably, and I don't really think there's another way to argue against it, the best holding midfielder in the world. And to not play him there has always confused me. And it was such a demonstration of how good he can be and how much balance he brings to that uh, midfield because the other two Chelsea midfielders were Mason Mount and Kai Havertz, who, yes, will put in a solid defensive display, but primarily they are attacking modern midfielders. And they were absolutely able to do that this week. Well, that that was always his thing, wasn't it? You know, he won back-to-back lead titles with Leicester and then Chelsea and for, you know, a good period of two years just looked like one of the best players on the planet. And yeah, in my mind, has kind of not disappeared off the face of the earth, but you just haven't seen him play 10 out of 10 games as frequently. And I think it, it is partly, if not largely, down to the fact that he hasn't been played in his, his best position. Um, yeah, I mean, he's he's literally the guy in the pick. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that was one thing that just, I mean, for me as a, pl- uh, like a, a guy that watches the games, it is just something that has always confused me and... I don't know. It's now being pegged as some big revelation, and I don't know why. But <laughs> look, if, if you're a midfielder that is so good that you can make Danny Drinkwater <laughs> appear in part of a league-winning pivot, you should always play that guy in the same position. <laughs> well, that's for damn sure. Um, across the pitch, though, uh, you know, I think everyone played really well. Timo Werner looks absolutely lethal. He took that chance towards the end of the game so quickly and so brutally. It was a real statement of intent. I think Mason Mount played really well centrally. Uh, Hakim Ziyech looked really strong in his first Premier League game. Um, And yeah, just um, all round a very encouraging performance for Chelsea. Burnley, on the other hand, still no goals at home all all season. It's it's not looking great. Absolutely no, no threat at all. And I personally, I know that they kind of posed the question to the match of the day, um, staff and they all said, you know, Sean Dyke will be fine. He's got out of tighter spots. I'm worried about Burnley. Hmm. I, I really do think this could be the year we see them go down because they've just got such massive issues that they're not even trying to solve. Um, and you know, it, it, if you don't score goals, you cannot win at football. That's just rule one. Uh, yeah, it's it's they're in real trouble, uh, and and something needs to change. They need to turn something around. I think. Really, what they're missing is is creativity in midfield. I think Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood are strikers that can score goals in the Prem. We know that. They just have absolutely no creativity around them to create chances. And Burnley have even apparently lost the ability to defend well. So I don't really know what they have going for them right now. But they need to stop this free fall. No, it's, it's, it's no good. Um Looking at a game that had a few more goals, at least from from both sides taking part, we had Villa Southampton was another seven goal thriller. <laughs> Woohoo! The uh, the token uh, seven goal thriller. I feel like that should be the uh, the pay per view. Um, <laughs> the pay per view game retroactively, whichever game had the most goals. No, it's just like it's like the Premier League guarantee. It's like one of these games will be seven goals. Oh, if you pay fifteen pounds for it, yeah, you pay, yeah, you're paying for the goals. Um, but yeah, it's a, like a really two, weird game. Two pounds per goal. A really um, weird game because Villa have looked at times like the best side at the back this season, and have just fallen to bits in in, in recent weeks. And Southampton, who sometimes look a bit toothless, managed to get four. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Let's not take this out of context. Look at the statistics, and I think it's quite obvious to see that 
this is a real anomaly of a game. Um, take, I know a lot, a lot of people, not, not everyone believes in XG, but um, I think Villas was two, Southampton was um, less, like, like half a goal was their XG, and they scored four. Villa had nine shots on target, Southampton, you guessed it, only had four. Uh, Villa had 11 corners to Southampton's one. It was literally just some very, very good free kicks from James Ward-Prowse that won it. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that was it. It, it. Really, you know, sometimes set-piece mastery is something that doesn't get appreciated as often as, as it could sometimes, I think. Because um, you often, you know, you think about the teams that perfect their set-pieces, and it's usually the unglamorous ones. I always think of, like, a Burnley or, or, or a Rory de Lapp throwing for, for Stoke or something. But, um, or, you know, Sunderland side that were great at corners. But, um, no, I think if you can find those moments in a game where you can just pull ahead with three or four bits of, you know, individual brilliance, that wins your games. It sure does. And, um, yeah, I know, I know we've joked about how I really like James Ward Prowse as a player, but I think that this, this week really demonstrated why that is because for me, he epitomizes this new wave of English midfielder, which is one that, is really technical, is able to play in a possession-dominant midfield and will put serious time into perfecting dead ball. Um, I think of other players like Mason Mount, for example, or James Madison, or um, you know even Marcus Rashford. These players all take free kicks and corners really, really well. And that, to me, means they are putting in extra hours on the training ground and they're serious professionals. And I just, I'm so here for it. Yeah, no, that, it, it, that, that's a very good point because it is a good sign. Well, it's just a sure sign that someone's been practicing it and, yeah, hints at a, at a stronger work ethic. And you do get that sense from certainly the, the players you mentioned there. Definitely. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Southampton um, Villa didn't get a single save uh, this game. So all of the, the shots on target went in. Mm. So, you know, sometimes Efficient. it do be like that. Uh, and Villa will hope that they can turn things around and get a uh, a result next time out because I think they were I don't want to say they were robbed because it was a really exciting game and I don't want to take it away from Southampton but I don't think it's necessarily something that would happen nine times out of ten. Yeah, the game didn't reflect or the scoreline didn't reflect the game really. <laughs> it's fine though; they're playing Arsenal away next week, so anything can happen. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, should we have a bit of useless trivia before we move into our next five games? Let's do this. After you. Uh, so I am going to go for uh, a, a, another local one. is uh, based on United. And I was surprised to learn this week that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has now lost as many Premier League home games at Man United as Steve Bruce has at Newcastle. Which... That's a... Okay. Right? It's quite surprising. Wow. Now, that means one of two things. Either Ollie's having an absolute nightmare, or Steve Bruce is the managerial messiah. Well, or both. Or, or uh, both. We can't rule out both. We absolutely um, not. But yeah, no, it, it's, it's interesting, because he's had such an up-and-down game, and he often gets compared to, for example, David Moyes, or Jose Mourinho's another one, but, you know, you look at how they've played so far, things aren't going so well. Uh, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, yeah? Well, no, I think they're going extremely well for Steve Bruce. but, uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, mean, I guess the, the only thing that I would um, put to the contrary is that I think that Solskjaer's win percentage is um, 
about if he was better than Jose Mourinho's, it's better than Frank Lampard's, it's better even than Jurgen Klopp's at Liverpool for his entire tenure. So I think that he does get uh, a lot of stick that he doesn't always necessarily merit. I think the main problem is that Man U are just so spineless and such a, I don't know, a mentally weak side at the moment that he he comes under a lot of uh, pressure for his performances. But it's not all bad. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you say that, and that is true. There There are some positives, but I do think it's important to remember, and sometimes you do forget, which is just weird to think, that Man United used to just win everything. And just to see the way that they've come back, and especially Old Trafford, which growing up, I just remember, you had a game where Old Trafford, I mean, we were just talking about, for example, Arsenal, who are another top six team, haven't managed to win there for 14 years. And it's just stopped being, obviously that wasn't under a Solskjaer, it started happening uh, as soon as Ferguson left, but it's just weird for me to always sort of conceptualise that, that I'll sort of like register in my head that Old Trafford is just not the fortress it once was. Yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, unpopular opinion, and we can definitely break this down at another time, but for me, that is entirely the fault of Sir Alex Ferguson. Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we, we can get into that in a, in a future episode, because I think we would spend too long covering it in the, in the half hour or so we have left uh, today. But um, but yeah, no, I think, think that's a, a, a take that is getting more and more popular as the years go on. I've been saying it for a while. Um, and yeah, we we could talk about it another time. Uh, my um, useless trivia this week uh, is related to the uh, refereeing that we've seen in, in recent years. And I wanted to take it back to the 2006 World Cup finals, where um, the sole uh, English representative referee, a man by the name of Graham Pohl, um, became the first referee in a um, serious international competition to book the same player three times in one match. Ah, I remember this fondly. A Croatian player. It was a Croatian player, yeah. Croatia versus Australia in what was actually quite an important group stage game and could have dictated um, who went through and who did not. And a player whose name I intend to fully butcher uh, of um, Simonic. Uh, got booked three times and sent off after the final whistle. And who says UK refs are all over the place, eh? <laughs> well, and who says it started with VAR? <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's true enough. I, 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 remember, I remember having, um, you know, those World Cup Panini sticker books? Yeah, I, I had like the little Croatian thing skyed, and it had on like the team page like that thing. It, it was like his fun fact, or whatever. It was like he's the only player to be booked three times. Oh, really? <laughs> Good <laughs> uh, stuff. Looking at um, uh, another one of our weird surprise games. Although, I mean, both of these teams have had such mixed fortunes. Newcastle and Everton. Um, Newcastle, the victors today, two one. Everton have <laughs> like they started the season looking unbelievably good, and now. That's two games in a row that they've, they've not really done their best. I know. If only there was some sort of concrete, uh, obvious um, defining feature of these two games. Um, maybe the fact that there is no uh, Hamas Rodriguez in midfield. It yeah. Could, it could be that. It, it definitely is, but it, it's just surprising to me that a manager as accomplished and you know experienced as Carlo Ancelotti has allowed the team to rely so heavily on one player. I mean, you would have expected them to, to lose a little bit of, of shape and form, but they've gone from looking like 
a team that we were sort of tentatively going, well, at what point do you say maybe they might challenge? To, to being like, oh, okay, well, they'll lose to Southampton and Newcastle back to back. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think we started to talk about it before um, Everton played a game without Hamas Rodriguez. So I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. But this idea that they look great with that starting eleven, are they going to struggle if they don't play that exact formation and those exact players? And ultimately, I think the thing we can take from it is that you can't go from naught to a hundred in a week. It's just impossible. You're always going to come unstuck. It's not, you can't build for consistent long-term success overnight. And what we've seen is that as soon as something changes, it completely upsets the balance of the squad. And, you know, are they title contenders? Completely depends on how fit the players manage to remain. That's literally all it's going to come down to. Yeah, very true. And, And something that this season is especially relevant because, we are just seeing a much higher rate of injuries. But I think, you know, not to take anything away from Newcastle, I think they, as well, in, in sort of the reverse fashion, have had real ups and downs, especially with the whole sort of Callum Wilson scenario. Well, it's maintained as a fantastic signing, um, but he kind of has been having a bit of a, you know, hit, hit and miss type thing going on, and today, today was hit. Yeah, it's true. I, I do agree with you, though, that he's a great signing, and I think that him up top does just give them that touch of quality that, they really have been missing for the last season, at least. Um, also highlight uh, Miguel Almiron in midfield. I think he set the pace uh, for a lot of the game, um, helping Newcastle to break quickly on the counter against Everton, which really um, you know caught them off guard and allowed them to, I guess, like ease into the game and get a couple of goals. So yeah, I think Newcastle are looking like a different prospect this year. Well, it's the almighty Steve Bruce. Who would have thought that the almighty Steve Bruce would be trouncing Carlo Ancelotti? It's not a it's not a matchup that lends itself to the history books, but here we are. Uh, I just I do love how soft his voice is. He just I feel like he could do ASMR, and I'd listen. <laughs> the bonus feature on the Newcastle Club DVD at the end of the season. Steve now, Bruce softly whispers into your ear about uh, <laughs> the tactics. Yeah, I'd pay for that. I I would pay for that. Um, Moving away from soft speakers into uh, Jamie Vardy with his 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 shin pads again, the uh, chat shit got banged. Uh, Leeds and Leicester was just a bizarre game. Do you think? I thought so. Yeah, I I thought it was quite impressive how how quickly it ran away from them that game. Why Why do you think it's bizarre? Well, because Leeds in the last few weeks have, have shored up quite well defensively. Um, and they, they seemed to me at the start of the season to be kind of a bit bright eyed. Obviously, they, they used to be a very, very, uh, persistent candidate. What's the word I'm looking for? They used to always be in the, in the Premier League and haven't been for 16 years. And I think they did have a little bit of that, you know, uh, wide eyedness in their first few games and, and conceded seven goals. But, um, you know, since then, I think they've conceded two goals in the games that they've had after Liverpool and Fulham. Um, so to then sort of revert to form uh, and, and concede four, I, I thought was kind of breaking with what I, would, I was expecting. Yeah, it's interesting. See, I guess in hindsight, I mean, this definitely isn't how I saw the game going. I think I predicted 2-1 leads. But in hindsight, when you look at the game, you think of the two sides and how they play. Leads are a really vibrant, dynamic if somewhat naive, attacking side. And Leicester are at their strongest when they are allowed to 
um, sit back, absorb pressure, and then hit teams on the counter. So from my perspective, makes complete sense because Leeds played right into Leicester's best hand. I think they did, and I think it, it, it was just surprising because so many players had particularly bad games uh, for Leeds, and I thought, you know... For example, Dennis Pratt and Harvey Barnes had just got to play the game of football they wanted exactly. I think that's a good way of phrasing what you said of, of them being allowed to play because I think Robin Cock had a terrible game. I think they just got overrun in the midfield from minute one. Obviously, Leicester scored in the second minute. Um, so it was, you know, we looked at Leeds playing against, for example, Man City and they showed real resolve and I just didn't, didn't think they had that today. Not yeah, and I think... I think, as you said, like that's a really important point, which is that Leeds scored. I'm um, sorry, Leicester scored really early on, and at that point, it then completely changed the dynamic of the game because um, Leeds then have to go on and be on the front foot and try and and win rather than ease into it, and they just never were allowed to do that. Yuri Tielemans looked really comfortable in midfield. Um, he looks like he is growing into that role really well and as you said yeah some some not so great performances from Leeds I think the first goal was the perfect example which was Patrick Bamford missed a great chance defender messed up a pass back Leicester were absolutely ruthless and capitalized yeah and 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 on the other hand you know yeah Bamford was a was one of the real standout stinkers for me he just couldn't buy a goal yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously we've, we've praised him a lot. And I think it's right to praise him because on his day, he can be a really good player. But he's he's been known <laughs> for being uh, relatively inconsistent. So it's not a surprise in that sense that he's not going to do it 38 games out of 38. He just seems really keen to defy us. I think last week we finally relented and went, OK, fine, Patrick Bradford. <laughs> you've had a really disappointing like stop-start career up till now, but you've had a really good start season with Leeds, so we'll finally say you're a good striker. And then he's like, how about I miss all of these sitters? <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me, it's just a real like, it's a smack back down to earth. Yeah. Um, and Leeds have had one or two this season, but this is the main one. I think, you know, this is the Prem and, and it's not going to be easy going for them. Yeah, and I think it's weirdly, although this might be weird to say, it might be something that helps them in the long run of sort of, you know, realising, okay, we are in the big boys league now. We can't just bully everyone like we did in the championship and we can't come up and suddenly have our dicks swinging around and be like, we're going to beat Leicester because you might get slapped. Yeah, and I think in that sense, you know, uh, losing 4-3 to Liverpool didn't teach them that lesson because they thought to themselves like, oh, wow, we can compete with the best of them. Um but yeah, absolutely. Hopefully they learn from it. And, you know, I, I think that they are still a great side, albeit one which has maybe shown their ceiling for this season. Yeah, no, no I think that's fair. Um, a game that had a much lower ceiling than either of us would have expected, I imagine. I, I'm going to guess that we, I can't remember exactly, but I'm sure we went for like seven nils in settling the score. But um, Sheffield United, Man City, one nil. Yeah, um, I actually predicted 1-1, so Ooh. there you go. Well, there you go. I think it was, you know, obviously Sheffield didn't manage to get a point here, but I think they put in a much better showing um, than they have managed to this season. They had to soak up a lot of pressure. They had to deal with Man City going for them, which is always a scary prospect. Uh, and did end up losing, but I think if you're Sheffield, and we talked about how low their self-esteem was last week, potentially, but um, you'd be probably fairly happy with this game if you're a Sheffield fan. I think it's one of those things that you always hear people do, talk about. Do you about. think? Yeah, it's one. Of, I remember listening to, uh, I can't remember, it was either a Sunderland fan or a West Ham fan back in the day, and they were describing sometimes when you play games like this, it's not a question of like, oh, do we win or lose, but like, how much do we lose by? And I, I, I was pretty positive with Sheffield overall with this game, I would have said. 
That's fair. I mean, I think... I don't know. I mean, it's not like Man City are going into this game in the best form. They drew 1-1 with West Ham the game before. Um, so I, I think that Sheffield will... I mean, Sheffield fans won't be particularly thrilled by the performance because there was nothing to get excited about. They sacrificed all of their attacking potential for defending as much as possible. But I guess, you know, yeah, they only conceded one against a Man City attack, which hasn't looked very exciting this year without um, Sergio Aguero and, and without any sort of proper number nine. They, they haven't, but... Sometimes even without those, I mean, usually they have Aguero for this, but sometimes they do just turn it on. And if we look at Leeds-Leicester as a game that could be really important for Leeds' season because they lost quite heavily, you can also look at this game at a critical junction in uh, in Sheffield season where morale's going to be pretty low. They don't know how things are going to go beyond this. They've not had a lot of luck. And if they got smashed 7-0 here, that just could, it could just sign the death. Yeah, that would have been tough. That um, would have been tough for sure. Um, that's fair, yeah. I mean, I think... You know, they they are still, however, just creating nothing and, you know, they need to, that needs to change. Um, On the flip side, I know I uh, was quite harsh just now about Man City's attack and about how they play without a grow. I know we've talked about it a lot, but I guess we've got to give uh, Ferran Torres a little bit of credit here because he's not a bad looking striker for a right winger. To be fair, yeah, he does no, a lot he's, better he's... Of, a, of a job than Raheem Sterling. Yeah, no, but that, I mean that's the the comparison most easy to draw, and I think it is fitting because sometimes Raheem Sterling, who is in fairness a world class winger, just can't do it up front, and Kevin De Bruyne has been tried there and can't do it. So for you know for Ferran Torres to step in there, and I think he's scored three games in a row. Um, sorry, sorry, not including this, we've got this yes, but he's scored uh, the pre- previous game against Marseille and also their game against Olympiacos. So, yeah, he's getting the goals and it's it's impressive to see him fit into that role. Agreed. Um, yeah, so, you know, hopefully uh, City can build around him when they have to. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that. Someone they didn't really seem to be building around in this game was um, Phil Foden, who I don't think there's that much to look at it other than just Pep likes to rotate all the time, but only getting nine minutes, you were thinking that maybe he was, you know, starting to etch his position as a as a starter, but I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't think we can read too much into Pep Guardiola's uh, tinkerings. He will always, you know, bench Leroy Sané as soon as he scored three goals in a row <laughs> in three games he'll he'll always like decide to switch out Riyad Mahrez for Bernardo Silva with no real intent behind it to be no, honest no rhyme or I, my, my thing for him though is like if you're gonna do that stop being such a coward play Edison in midfield if you really want to be this hipster manager <laughs> and, and sell that to us and you, you've been banging on about it for years play Edison in the midfield you coward live by the sword Pep you heard it here first <laughs> <laughs> um, true enough well you know fingers crossed uh, next week um, you know I guess uh, they're playing Olympiacos at the moment the game is still young anything could happen could happen um, but an- another game that we saw that was a nice change in fortunes was Fulham getting their first win of the season it sure was uh, and yeah they've definitely had to wait a while for it um, and you know they, they were they deserved it I think um, they controlled the midfield had a little bit less possession, but um, five shots on target compared to just two for West Brom. Um, and yeah, you got to hope that this is the start of something a little better. Yeah, played well again. I think um, Adamola Luckman has 
again, didn't score, but looked really dangerous again. He's added something. Bobby Deckard over Reed, um, obviously got a goal and was really, really impressive. I think Mitrovic managed to dust his, himself off a little bit after a pretty tricky start to the season and, and got two assists today. Um, which again, sort of looks at that Ings Kane type thing we were talking about last week. Um, so yeah, I think it's not going to be a great season for Fulham. But already, um, if you remember, I had that, that mate who thinks they're going to finish with less points than Derby. They're already on track to not do that, to escape that fate. So, small consolation prize, if that's, that's the most they can hope for. But but a consolation prize nonetheless. Yeah, yeah I think um, the one thing I want to highlight that I was looking at is um, taking a look at their formations. In the seven games they've played in the Premier League this season, they haven't fielded the same midfield three twice. It's It's always been a different team. And... I think that Scott Parker has been kind of floundering for some sort of form and some sort of, you know, puzzle way to put his players together and and maybe hope that they play well this time. And is this it? Maybe. Um, Hopefully, definitely for uh, the West London side, because I agree with you. I think, um, you know, Tom Kearney looked a lot better in that slightly more um, attacking role. Anguissa and Lamina also looked pretty solid in the holding positions. And yeah, Bobby Reed and um, Adam Ola-Lukman look great on the wings. Yeah, and I think A much more balanced side than we've seen so far. It's one of those things when managers keep changing the midfield or just the 11 in general, like off the back of several losses. You can kind of look at it in either, yeah, the manager doesn't really, hasn't, got, hasn't got a clue what's going on, or he's just being quite reactive. And I think... It remains to be seen if, you know, I mean, I suppose we'll see next game if they change the midfield again. But I don't think it's a bad thing to be a reactive manager in a club where so everything's on fire. So, No, true. It's just so hard because, like, do you stick or twist? Do you try and build up some sort of form and consistency with one side? Or do you keep changing things until it works? It's a mm. really hard balance to find. Oh, yeah. Deep, deep. Yeah. Play those players until they find form or just try and, you know, claw a point where you can because at the end of the day... You know, it's, it's it's thin margins usually that people go down by or stay up by. Yeah, exactly, and um, you know, especially whereas you know, the the more you lose games or draw games or fail to get points where you could or should, the more panic enters in, the more players drop their heads at the first sign, and yeah, it's um it's going to be a tough season ahead for them, but they're not down and out just yet. Not yet. And finishing off the week with the first game uh, that we actually had chronologically uh, was Wolves Palace, which saw a really interesting debut from their new left back. Yeah, and, uh, you know, not a bad way to to seal the game with um, a goal as well. I think um, he looks like a pretty exciting young player, doesn't he? They always have like a a couple of those you know exciting little diminutive European players coming into the coming into the fold, um, and obviously Pedence finally managed to get his goal. He sure did, and I, I think um, he looked really good this game. He he ran that Wolves attack in a way that he hasn't so far, and I think that you know we've talked before about how they've really lacked Diogo Jota, and I agree. I think. Podence can do that every now and then. I think the main thing that Wolves have lost that I can see so far is consistency because Podence can maybe do it one game out of four, yeah. but he's not going to be able to consistently offer that. But, you know, he, he could grow into it and, and it's games like this where you can, 
you know, Palace have been a, a, a tricky side to, to get the best of at some points this season. So to be able to get that here and, and pick up the slack when Jimenez, you know, isn't, isn't doing all the hard work for you, um, you know, it, it could be the next thing. And I do think that Wolves will look back at the season and, and question their sale of Yota because I think they've already dropped some points as a result of that and they didn't really need to sell him. Um, but if Pudence can have games like this, hopefully he can fill a bit of that hole. Yeah, well, it's there are some interesting things from this. I think the first one is Adama Traore has only started three of seven matches so far, which surprises me because he was their main bright spark at times during last season. The other thing is, I don't know why they've sent a player like Morgan Gibbs-White on loan this season because, again, I think that uh, for, for people who don't remember him, this is like an 18, 19-year-old young English player that had a couple of um, breakout games last season and looked really sharp. Yeah, notably against Spurs, I think he he had a game where he just ran the midfield. Exactly, and they've sent him on loan to Swansea, and I just feel like he could really do a job in this Wolves midfield, and I understand the pressure for you know um, young players needing to gain a lot of playing time and experience, but I do think they have maybe missed a trick. Yeah, and it's it's weird because there are some teams that you wouldn't be surprised to not give a young player their chance. You think of like a Burnley, for example. I can see Sean Tide being like, oh, only if you're 28 and you drink real ale can you play not a Not today, lad. <laughs> exactly. Whereas Wolves have never really been afraid of giving players a chance if they're good enough. And certainly a lot of the times they buy players. I mean, just this summer they bought an 18-year-old for £35 million. So I, they don't usually strike me as a team that excludes players based on age. Um, and I, I agree, Morgan Gibbs White would have been a, an extra string to their bow. Yeah, and, and why aren't we seeing enough of a Demetriori? I think that might be, and I might be completely off here, but I think he always um, seems to be carrying, like, ever since that thing with his arm last season getting dislocated, I think he's had trouble getting back to 100% fitness. Um, oh, okay. Which is why they've always kept oiling up his arms as well. Uh, I might I might be wrong there, but I, I'm pretty sure that's the reason. Because, you know, again, yeah. one of their best players last season and, you know, looked like he might be the player to get a big money move, but not seen much of him, so... No, no. Well, we'll. I'll forgive you this time, Nuno. Um, but, <laughs> they just uh, keep running out of grease. <laughs> that must be it. That's the only logical explanation. Um, Palace, on the other hand, pretty up and down, quite stop-start. Yeah. Never really got going. I, I mean, they could have had... They were very close to scoring twice. They, they were, could have had I, I, a penalty, I, I, but it was ruled off for offside and also had a goal ruled off for offside, both inches in it. And sometimes that is just the margin of, of, of the win. Yeah, it is. And I, I, I'm so conflicted about Palace because they have a lot of players that I like and I want to see succeed. But I, I just find it difficult to get excited about them as a side. I, I look at how they line up and obviously having Woy at the helm is, is not the most encouraging thing. Um, and I think I had them going down in my, in my table prediction. Um, and I just think, you know, sometimes, yeah, you could say, oh, they've gone lucky. But I just didn't think they were equal to, to Wolves this game. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think on balance, definitely, Wolves deserve to win. Um, one player I think that I want to highlight that I've just noticed over the last couple of weeks is um, their midfielder, Jairo Riederwald. I mm. think he looks like he could be quite an exciting young player. And I think that with um, Luka Miljelovic getting sent off, he's going to really have to, to do a job in midfield until he can come back. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Like, there are players, so Zaha's one of them. Uh, Reader Wald is another one. I really like pa- Patrick Van Aanholt. I look at those players and I think, ooh, okay, I, I want to see you succeed. And then it, it, there's just nothing else to bring it together for me. Um, but maybe yeah. that's... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone dislikes Mishi Batshuayi either. Yeah, He just exactly. seems like a pretty happy-go-lucky guy who wears SpongeBob underwear. Pretty, pretty friendly guy. Um, shall we reveal... Well, I'll, I'll try and reveal, uh, for my own sake, uh, guess a game before we move into settling the score. Let's do it, man. Who have you got? So are we giving you two guesses or just one this week? Uh, I think I know who it is. Um, okay. I, I think I know who it is based on... I've got like a follow-up. It's not like a, a new question. It's just to clarify something you said. When you said okay. where he was from, you said he was English. Did you mean he's British? No, I said he's from the UK. Oh, he's from the UK. Okay, yeah, then I know who it is. Ah! Uh, this is uh, the Welsh wizard himself, Craig Bellamy? It is indeed <laughs> Craig Bellamy. Well done, my friend, who um, famously scored for Coventry City, Newcastle United, Blackburn Rovers, Liverpool, West Ham, Man City and Cardiff in that order. Quite impressive. What a man. Um, it was fortunate also, that one uh, too. It was like... Um, uh, Peter Crouch and just like the journeyman thing <laughs> I was suddenly just like aha I remember this guy who could it be yeah he's <laughs> he's got some quite funny stuff about him that I was gonna um also put in but I thought they they were just maybe weren't as uh well-known statistics but he was once described by Bobby Robson as the gobbiest footballer he's ever met yeah um which I quite enjoyed uh one thing which I enjoyed a little bit less which I um didn't remember but um, Craig Bellamy once got into an argument with John Arnorisa during a training session um, and they had an argument in the bar on the final night of them um, before a Champions League game in Portugal and Craig Bellamy turned up to John Arisa's hotel room with a golf club uh, and just whacked him on the bum a couple times while he was asleep having broken into his room in the middle of the night um, and then in Reese's autobiography, he said that the incident was way more violent than Bellamy made out. Um, and then in Bellamy's next game, he celebrates scoring a goal with a golf stroke celebration. <laughs> you always want to play a character. Uh, oh, Craig Bellamy. Earning the nickname The Nutter with the Putter. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> there you go. Um, so, well, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with myself, um, but I'm sure I'm yeah, about to be well brought done. right Fair back enough. down to earth and settling the score. Well, that means that you have to do me a favour and, and lose settling the score, right? That's what we agreed. Yeah, no, I've, I'll, I'll never win both. Um, <laughs> kicking off with last week's games, uh, so we're going to start where we just left off with Wolves Palace. Uh, what did you have for this? I predicted 1-0 to Wolves, and I'm pretty sure you called it 2-0. Uh, I called it 1-1, actually. Oh, did you now? So, the point. so point, point me. Indeed. Glory, glory be. Uh, Sheffield City, you said 1-1. Uh, I thought it was going to be a bit more of a scoreline. I thought 3-0, so you uh, take that based on the proximity. Good, good. That's good stuff. We like this. Uh, Burnley-Chelsea, I think you've probably got... I called it 2-1 to Chelsea. I said 3-1. And uh, and then that was closer than mine. Well done, you. A delicious point. Uh, Liverpool-West Ham, I <laughs> kind of was almost right, but also not 3-2, I said. I said um, 3-1, so I win. Indeed you do. 
Villa Southampton. I didn't get this one right. I went two on Villa. Yeah, I also was a little wrong. I said one nil Villa. Uh, ah. So point point to you. Congratulations. Uh, Newcastle Everton. I thought Everton would score two with no reply, but they did not. I actually predicted one one. Uh, which means you're correct. It does indeed. United Arsenal, I had very little faith in Arsenal's record against the top six, so I went for Man United 2, Arsenal 0. I went for 1-0 to Man U, so again, that's that's me. <laughs> uh, Spurs-Brighton, I thought Spurs' high-scoring form was going to see them get four, although I did think Brighton were going to score one themselves. I had 2-1, so I think that's a... Oh, sorry, I had 3-0. So, that's a draw? Yes. Uh... Yeah. Yes, uh, and then wrapping us up, I had Fulham West Brom. See, I remember I went for one one for this, and you almost did as well. I think you were for Fulham win. I went for one 0 Fulham. I predicted their first win of the season, and they uh, the baggies pulled through for me. Thank you very much. Really no, not the baggies. I'm an idiot. The um, the Fulham. I can't remember what, what's their <laughs> just the whites. what's their nickname. What are they? They're not called the Whites. Come on, man. Yes, Fulham. Yes, they are. And I know that because I used to spend loads of time at Motspur Park and they just have come on you whites written everywhere. Wow. <laughs> nice and inclusive. <laughs> Is that really what they're called? I uh, know they're called the Cottagers. That's what I was going for. Um, anyway, I called it 1-0. You called it 1-1. Point me. The points to the victory of the spoils and lead to Leicester, I said 2-2. I predicted 2-1 to Leeds. Uh, so I will take that, but I don't think it's going to save me, for I have only picked up three points this week. I've got six, baby. No! <laughs> it's another win for me. I think that's a, a back-to-back as well. Um, shall we shoot Good times. the uh, games for next week, starting with Brighton-Burnley? Yes, let's. Um, Brighton-Burnley, I think, has 1-0 written all over it. Uh, I'm going to say 1-1, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, Southampton and Newcastle is another weird one because they've both been sort of kind of free scoring. Um, although, as we covered in the, with the free kick one, that was sort of a bit of a happy accent for Southampton. I think it's 2 1 Newcastle. Interesting. I kind of want to go 2 2, but I'm going to go for. Uh, I'm going to go 2 1 Southampton. Okay. Everton United, big boy prediction time. I'm saying 3 1 Everton. 3 1 Everton, wow. I'm going to go nil-nil. Okay, interesting, interesting. Uh, Crystal Palace leads. I think Leeds are going to get a little bit of confidence back and win uh, 2-1. I'm going to go one nil Palace. Ooh, I'm going nice. rogue this week. Okay. Uh, Chelsea, Sheffield United. Uh, I think Chelsea are feeling pretty happy with themselves. 2-0. I'm going to go 3-0. Nice. Uh, West Ham, Fulham. Uh, West Ham, I think, <laughs> are going to give Fulham a bit of a humbling. Uh, I think 3 0. I'm going to go for 2 1. I think uh, Fulham are going to try and do their best to, to get something back from this game and uh, continue their good form of, of one game one. <laughs> uh, but ultimately, will come unstuck. Uh, West Brom Spurs. I'm going to go ahead and say this is going to be a, a bit of a goal fest. I'm going to say 3 2 Spurs. That is a goal fest. That's. Uh... Wow, West Brom to score two. Um, I am going to say 2-0 to Spurs. 
Uh, Leicester and Wolves, uh, I think, is going to be 2-2. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting game, this one. I think it's, it's, it's hard to predict. Um, I'm going to go for 1-0 Leicester. Uh, Man City and Liverpool uh, is another really interesting one because it's two, you know, the two best teams in the league last season, but they both had weird starts and they're missing some important personnel. Uh, I think it is going to be a one-one. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say something similar, but I don't want to be boring and copy you. I'm gonna go for one-nil to Liverpool. Hmm, that would be a, a surprising. Change from what, what, what I think most people would expect. Um, and then wrapping us up is Arsenal versus Aston Villa. Um, I think that Arsenal will actually not have the, have the upset that I think a lot of people expect them to against a, a promising Villa this season. Uh, and I think they're going to win it 2 1. I'm going to go for 2 2. A nice score fest draw. Mm, well, fantastic. Uh, Rupert, uh, congratulations on winning the settling the score. So we, we both take one apiece again. Um, and Thank you very much. Congratulations on uh, finding the player in the rough. I will do indeed. Uh, and um, I hope that our listeners got along uh, just as well, or at least had a good time trying to think about it. Great to talk to you as always, Roops. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.